Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. On today's show, we welcome Portfolio Manager Jeremy Podger as he joins us on the program to discuss how to navigate the global marketplace. With over 25 plus years experience, Jeremy manages the Fidelity Global Fund, which aims to uncover potential investment opportunities among high quality businesses, undervalued securities, and companies undergoing positive change. Jeremy says 2023 so far is looking positive for global markets compared to last year, and that's because of a few major turning points, which includes the bond market, currency, technology, and the value versus growth story. For the Fidelity Global Fund, there is a full circle outlook in terms of its allocation. He says the fund is back to being overweight in Europe and Japan, overweight in healthcare and financials, and there is a bit more caution towards communications and technology. Jeremy also discusses the reopening of China and its economy, European central banks, and how he's looking at emerging markets. This podcast was recorded on February 7, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Let's take a look at the relative story ultimately for for investors in North America looking to other places around the world. A lot actually has changed with the changing of the year, hasn't it? Yeah, it's it's quite remarkable when we think how far we've come in in just a couple of months. Um, you know, going into the third quarter, people were desperately gloomy. You know, there'd been a fear that uh, Europe was going to be plunged into recession. People didn't know what was happening in China. And uh, suddenly we find ourselves now in a positive market condition with everybody looking through the apparent current downturn to better times ahead. So, uh, yes, certainly there's been a huge change in sentiment. When you look at sort of a pivot is a loaded word this year, but there were other areas around the world in terms of markets and things that changed within the global marketplace. What what were those turning points that perhaps have us turning attention back to Europe, actually? Yeah, I mean, well, we can, we can look at the short term uh, turning points, but I think 2022 was really significant in terms of long term turning points. And certainly shook up, I think, quite a lot of investors' sort of long-term assumptions about what works in investing. You know, and I think they're they're really related. But the four most important ones are clearly the bond market back backdrop and the end of the 30-year bull market in in bonds would be the first uh, turning point. Um, then the dollar, which clearly turned in, in in the fourth quarter from very extended levels in terms of purchasing power. That has removed the relative support for the U.S. market compared to others. You know, the third turning point, I think, is technology. We haven't really seen a turn like this since the the tech bubble of 2000, 2001. And uh, and finally, the uh, which is kind of related to these points is is the turn in value versus growth. A lot of investors had become naturally very growth biased. 
And I think that assumption was very much shaken up last year. Fascinating uh, how that has worked out on on the European front. And I mean, I guess you'll acknowledge for us that this is this has been quite a month to start the year. But that said, getting past some of the nervousness on the energy front for Europe was was also a huge piece of this story, the relative story. I mean, that's absolutely that's absolutely the case. It was really probably September, early October that we started to realize, you know, ahead of the worst potential weather in, in, in winter, that gas stocks were being rebuilt faster than normal. You know, Europe's done a good job on the supply side, getting in more LNG, for sure, to replace Russian gas. But on the demand side, that has fallen enormously, much more than people thought it would do. Industries have switched their fuels. Um, households have been using less gas. So really, those gas inventories were rebuilt. And it meant that through the fourth quarter, people stopped worrying about a crisis at the end of 2023 caused by, by gas. And obviously, we've seen very sharp falls in the gas price as well. And that meant better growth for Europe. You know, it meant that the ECB could raise interest rates to control inflation without people worrying too much about tipping into a, a really deep recession. And I think that that largely explains some of the relative performance that we've seen out of Europe in the last three months. It's been it's been really fascinating. When we spoke to you, I can't remember exactly when it was, but it was a few months back and you still had maybe even a year ago. There, there, tell us how you're allocated now, how, how differently things are. The tech story, as you mentioned off the top, has, has been a big change no. ultimately. Tell us a bit about your allocation in the fund. Well, geographically, we've we've sort of gone full circle, really, compared to a year ago. We weren't, we obviously weren't anticipating the Ukraine situation. And that caused us to reduce risk from the end of February last year. Later on in the year, we rebuilt exposure. So we are back to being over benchmark weighted in, um, in, in, in Europe um, and, and also actually in Japan. As far as sectors are concerned, if you look at the broader tech sector and you include communication services as well, then we we moved basically we moved below bench about a year ago, and that's pretty significant for us because we have been for many years over benchmarking tech. We're not giving up on it by any means, and there are you know it's such an interesting broad sector. There are always opportunities, but from a top-down point of view, from a relative valuation point of view, we are more cautious. Uh, we continue to be relatively cautious, in fact, on that sector. So let, let's bring in sort of where you are more overweight. I mean, which, which sectors, first of all, are those? Well, our, our two uh, favoured sectors in that way um, are healthcare, uh, which I know has been a, a place for a lot of people to hide, but we, we still think it's got a lot uh, going for it, and financials as well. And that has kind of evolved over the last year from being more of a focus on diversified financials and insurance to, and progressively through the year increasing to, uh, to banks where we've gone from below benchmark to over benchmark. Has there, has there been, when you go back to the years of sort of the European debt crisis and, and the consolidation that we thought was going to take place. Is, is there any, bring us up to date on that story. Is that still something that's sort of being discussed or have we moved past that? Europe had done a reasonable job coming through the pandemic period of building funds, which, um, you know, still to an extent have not been dispersed. There is 
less concern now about uh, fragmentation and sovereign debt issues in, in Europe. If we think about investing in, in financials, particularly in the bank sector, there have been a, a bit of a, um, a two-way pull, really, in banks in the early part of last year, thinking back to the Ukraine situation where people were very focused on potential credit risk. But then as the economic outlook improved and interest rates um, were raised, then the benefit that banks get from being able finally to make a margin on deposits is significantly outweighed any concern about the credit cycle. So we were then left with a, for example, a European bank sector, which was trading at roughly half book value Hmm. with potential to earn, you know, in this interest rate environment, significantly above cost of capital returns on that book. And so unsurprisingly, we've seen a, we've seen an upward revaluation you know, in the fourth quarter, for example, we added it to a, a high quality Belgian bank that continues to do well. Um, I think there could be some further mileage, um, although, you know, you have to be a bit more selective within the sector now. What about you, you talked, you spoke about about the energy situation, where things have landed ultimately. What about industrials ultimately that have to use those inputs? Industrials has been a that, that's been an area of focus for a lot of people. 2022 was actually quite a strong year for capital expenditure. You know, we have some background stories there to support that. You know, traditionally, the energy sector and the mining sector have been some very significant contributors to CapEx. And on top of that, we had the Inflation Reduction Act and, and, and thoughts about all the CapEx that is needed to decarbonize the economy. The situation this year, I think, is that because economies are slowing, PMIs have have been falling, sort of traditional capex is likely to decline. I think this, the long-term arguments around decarbonisation are still there, but I think we could get negative surprises on capex, and that leaves a lot of the capital goods companies looking actually quite expensive in relation to these PMI indicators. It looks like the market is being far too optimistic and looking through the current downturn. So our preference really even though we are, in fact, slightly over benchmark in industrials, is to focus on those areas that we think have good near and long term prospects in, you know, the transition economy, moving away from carbon and some automation exposure as well. That's interesting. OK, so automation, maybe we'll, maybe we'll come back to it. it. It just makes me think, though, ultimately, of the reopening of China. M- much discussion about the European economic, the benefits ultimately from China reopening travel, business, everything getting somewhat back to normal. We all know, having gone through various reopenings, that they're not necessarily smooth, but it it must ultimately be bullish for Europe. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously for some stocks more than others. So if you're thinking about China travel and the China consumer, then one sector that's done really almost as well as the, the, the banks recently within Europe is the luxury goods sector. Europe's very good at in this industry. We have an exposure there to Richemont, which we added last year, and that's been very strong recently. You know, I think I think valuations are still okay. Rather, as we saw in the US, the Chinese consumer has is sitting on a lot of excess savings right now. That is certainly one angle that, that we look at. But as far as the more general question of China opening up is concerned, 
yes, I think it's it's a big deal. You know, there are still lots of problems, particularly in the in the property sector. So we're not going completely mad for mining companies um, supplying you know construction in in China. But but on the other hand, I think that's good for Japan and Japan trade with China in general as well. So a number of the companies that we own in, in Japan are well geared into that. That's very interesting. So so Japan is sort of a, an exposure, um, even, even more than yes. usual or? Yeah. OK. No, Europe is, is slightly more of a, a tilt than, than Japan. But I think, um, you know, we, we, we've got a list of stocks that, that we look at on a quarterly basis. There are a lot of Japanese stocks that we want to re-examine, actually. Quite a, quite a number, I think, of potential opportunities. Going back to some of the pieces of the valuation, the relative story, ultimately, it certainly goes to the central banks. We've seen the ECB now get going. The Bank of England's had to get going for, for some time. But the ECB being able to really move on the interest rate front, tell us a bit more about on the currency side of things. And again, just ultimately how much further it probably has to go. Yes. I mean, it's, it's extraordinary thinking how far we've come in terms of the way we perceive central bank policy in just a couple of years. I mean, not so long ago, everybody thought that even a half a point increase would just tip Europe into a permanent recession. It's not, that's not the case. This has been about normalizing interest rates. And I think that that is generally a, a, a positive thing. You know, obviously the last rate rise is slightly greater for Europe than, than for the U- US and, and that supports the um, currency argument. So, you know, I think on a purchasing power basis, um, the dollar is still looking quite expensive, despite giving up about half of its gains in, uh, of the year in the last quarter. You know, Japanese yen is kind of absurdly cheap uh, on that measure, I think, at the moment. But yes, I mean, you know, central banks have found a new mission. The thing that I guess one of the things that worries worries us is that for the first time in a while in recent months, the market consensus and what the central banks are saying have moved quite far apart. The markets optimistically have been saying there will be a pivot, to use the word you mentioned earlier, around the middle of the year. Central banks have say, said, no, we're going to stick with it until the job is done. I mean, history is more on the central bank side, but they don't tend to cut until recession is upon us. You know, the jobs report from last week in the US probably supports the central bank starts rather more than um, you know market participants had been saying. So I think it's fascinating at the moment. The risk for is that there is no pivot. We do see a downturn, and I think that's going to make markets quite bumpy over the next several months. Do you think international equities will have more upside than than U.S.? Well, yes. You know, we've been saying this for a little while. As as I mentioned earlier, with these these turning points. A large part of the performance story for the U.S. has been rooted in technology, where earnings um, had been very, very strong and clearly were given a boost in the pandemic period. That's gone into reverse. You know, we're seeing the Q4 numbers come out now. Tech earnings in the States are about 10 percent down year on year in terms of the defined tech sector. Where we are in terms of valuations For this year, we're looking at the U.S. market on more than 18 times price earnings ratio. And that compares to 12 to 13 for Europe and Japan, a little bit lower for the U.K. So outside the U.S., valuations are kind of normal or kind of cycle average. In the U.S., they're still above. 
So there's definitely a valuation argument on top of all those other arguments about sort of long-term change in, in momentum. A broadly a question on EM, on emerging markets, you know, where that fits into the overall story for you. Well, we'll start there. There's another question that's somewhat linked, but what do you think on EM? I think, you know, it's always difficult to gen- completely generalize about emerging markets. Yeah. I mean, one thing you can, can say in the sort of defense of emerging markets is, is, you know, they did perform terribly badly. Also, the central banks and emerging markets were quite preemptive had more aggressive, generally more aggressive rate rises than um, than, than in the US. Uh, I'm putting China to, to one side for now. Now, valuations are reasonably attractive, but you, as I say, you have to take it region by region. So if we firstly take China, I think we've basically seen just about a 50% rise from the low. China, uh, the valuation fell from about 18 times forward earnings to eight times forward earnings. And we're now back to, a, I think, a reasonable valuation level. Our, our approach is to try and take advantage of any opening up in China as much through non-Chinese stocks, through developed market stocks, as through actual Chinese stocks. We're stuck with the small China exposure that we had in Q4. Now, on other emerging markets, I think, with the exception of Mexico, Latin America is is looking a bit tricky at the moment. There are political and economic challenges. And uh, we, we, we have some small exposure, but it's very, very stock specific. You know, I think emerging markets is fine now. We're not as bearish as we were. Good asset allocation argument for China because it's uncorrelated. But I don't feel like we're staring a massive opportunity um, of this in the same way that we did back in 2001 before EM had a 10-year bull market. It doesn't feel like that. What does it feel like when you hear the discussion of within the sort of discussion of EM, which I always wonder if it's the right way to be discussing it, but in any case, of India sort of replacing China as a growth engine of the world? There's been a big spotlight on India lately due to some big investors, big stories to go with it. But just that general thought of sort of India taking over the growth story ultimately within EM. To a large extent, I buy it. I think that that's absolutely right. So you've got more favorable demographics pandemic told us that a lot of a, a lot of business could be done virtually or remotely which favors india and their technology sector which is you know really well developed and and very highly skilled and then you know at the same time companies are trying to diversify their supply chains and we hear of apple for example building up manufacturing in india there's an awful lot more of this to happen and that's on top of pretty favorable demographics so the medium and long-term picture fundamentally is, I think, fantastic. The issue has been more to do with valuation. And, you know, obviously there have been some negative headlines um, recently, but I think we need to work work through that. But, you know, it's certainly an, a, a country that we're looking at. We have some exposure. It's not huge at the moment. What are your thoughts on, this is specifically on the China reopening, but but looking at the energy market, looking at the oil price globally? I mean, I, I wouldn't claim to be an expert on, on the energy price. I mean, a lot obviously depends on the resolve of, of OPEC. Our energy experts are pretty happy with, with oil around these prices um, and see more of an upside skew in terms of risk um, to, to prices from here. But, you know, this, this was a spectacularly strong performing sector last year. We've got to be a bit careful um, when we when we look at parts of 
this uh, complex. Um, for a lot of last year, gas prices were squeezed higher, for partly for the reasons that I've talked about in, in Europe. Um, gas prices have collapsed more recently. Refining margins have been super high, but they look unsustainable. So we've got to be a bit, bit more, I think, a bit more circumspect. Our process is such that we tend not to be very heavily exposed to commodity-driven stocks because, you know, they depend on a variable that we, you know, we much prefer to invest in, in companies with self-help potential and, and this kind of thing rather than being very dependent on, on that variable. So we are below benchmark in upstream oil and gas. We quite like services. I think that that um, continues to to look like a good area. So oil and gas services, uh, particularly where those companies are involved in carbon capture and part of the, um, you know, carbon transition story. Canada loves that story. Yeah, big story in Canada, yeah. the carbon capture story. Something that you mentioned off the top is one of the huge turning points that sort of unfolded last year. But just to get perhaps some more thoughts on that looking forward is, is the value versus growth discussion globally. We've seen a big rally in value and you know as as mentioned earlier it started last year really kicked off by energy and materials mining companies um, and then really broadened out and particularly financials got taken with it the when when we look across the sort of universe of value companies they still look cheap and that gap in valuation between value and growth is still unusually wide for value to work from here, you, pro you have to believe, I think, that bond yields are not going to go back down to super low levels, that there will be a certain amount of background inflation. But I think that, you know, I think that we have seen the turn. My concern more this year is that it will be very rotational. We'll, we'll see people moving from value to growth. And it's, I think, really important to have a balanced approach for this year. If I was betting on a five-year view, I think value is more likely to win. Interesting. Okay, that's really great to to sort of get your your thoughts there. I mean, is is style you want to be balanced? So so that's interesting. You to sort of see which would pull ahead if you really kind of had to to lay it yeah. out there. But when we apply ultimately some of those thoughts, perhaps to Europe, because there's much discussion around this. The question is sort of, does it have legs? Like, how, how does it look from here on in? It has been an extraordinary beginning of the year. Well, it has, yeah. You know, Europe, Europe up 30% from the low, the last quarter boosted by strengthening of the currency against the US dollar. Well, I think valuation is on its side. Um, you know, there are a lot of excellent companies in, in Europe. Um, Europe is more of a value market rather than the growth market. That's certainly true. I mean, it's not just financials that we've been adding to. We've, we have actually somewhat bravely added to autos, which look really cheap, big backlogs, for example, um, for Mercedes-Benz. Why does it have legs? Well, just very simply from an investor positioning point of view, two weeks ago, we saw the first positive flow into Europe for 48 weeks. Hmm. Uh, investors have been taking money out since the Ukraine invasion. And it's only just started to reverse. So I think it probably has legs. What is or what are the market risks that concern you? Just just for us to know that you're watching. Okay, so broadly speaking, I think there's a certain tension between what bond market participants see and what equity market participants see. Bond market participants are happy investing in sovereign bonds now because they see a slowdown and a fall in inflation. 
equity investors are trying to look through the downturn to the recovery. I think the biggest risk is we don't see pivot from the central bank. We do continue to see labour market inflation, labour market tightness, and we see earnings fall. That could mean another period where both equities and bonds do, do badly. I'm sure that there will be a period like that this year. And that, that, I guess, is my main concern. But, you know, I don't think we're facing sort of existential risks at this point, fingers crossed. Yeah. So the balanced approach. Okay. So it's so interesting to get your thoughts, particularly after last year, and to sort of see what, what everyone's gotten through and, and where we're going. Jeremy Podger, thank you for joining us. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.